This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Welcome. It's good to have you here as we're about to help you catch up on the top stories of all this past week, ending September the 24th. These are stories not only locally, but some of these national headlines and how they affect us here in this unique place we call the Puget Sound and the state of Washington. It takes the entire staff of Northwest News Radio. Again, always thank you every week to our producer, Bill O'Neill, and our editor, and also our tech advisor, Painter Webb, to make this all happen. You can hear it on radio Saturday nights at 7. We also play this program Sunday nights at 9 for your convenience. Don't forget, originally and still is a podcast. You can find that at our website at nwnewsradio.com. So what do you say we get started? Governor Jay Inslee meets with leaders in Norway and Finland. Plenty of reaction here and across the country to President Joe Biden claiming the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Also, we'll look into voters here in Seattle learning they will decide on a social housing initiative next year. These are just some of the stories we have for helping you catch up here with Northwest News Radio. Let's move right to our first story. It's rare for an American governor to sit down with European heads of state, but Washington's Jay Inslee says Nordic leaders made an exception for him. On this trade mission to Europe's Nordic nations, Inslee has talked green technology with the president of Finland and in Norway. But I had lunch with the crown prince and princess. Inslee mentions these meetings not just to drop names, but because he says it's unusual for a state governor and delegation to sit at such tables. And the reason we have is that people recognize Washington State is such a leader in the development of these new industries and technologies. Norway and its neighbors have been investing in alternative energy and clean industries for decades. Now, Inslee says, they are turning to Washington to learn more about state policies that have encouraged investment in battery technology, alternative aviation fuel, wind power, and more. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. The vice president and treasury secretary talk about millions of dollars for loans in underserved Washington communities. The federal emergency capital investment program delivered $57 million to community development banks and credit unions to loan to aspiring business people and affordable housing developers. Vice President Kamala Harris says it's for people who often lack equal access to that capital. Black entrepreneurs are three times more likely to report that they did not apply for a loan for fear of being turned away by a bank. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen adds, A disproportionate share of economic opportunity has been concentrated in certain neighborhoods and major coastal cities. The Biden-Harris administration is committed to shifting this dynamic. Among the institutions receiving that money are Industrial Credit Union of Whatcom County and OB Credit Union in Lacey, which can get breaks on their cost to pay the money back for their helping role in the communities. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Washington State isn't expected to bring in nearly as much tax revenue, we're told, over the next couple of years. Jeff Poljula with the latest. The Washington Economic and Revenue Forecast Council was briefed on the latest numbers and trends. Economists say with the Fed raising interest rates to fight inflation, consumer spending is expected to drop, thus tax collections will shrink. Democratic State Senator Christine Rolfa says that will affect budget negotiations in January. The forecast we have today kind of mirrors how the public is feeling the economy and will create a budget that matches that. Republicans, though, argued that shrinking revenues means it is time for tax cuts. Lawmakers will begin working on a state budget when they convene in January. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Employees here in Washington State could receive a bonus for receiving a COVID booster shot. Under a tentative agreement between the state and the largest union representing state workers, those who received the booster shot would receive a $1,000 bonus. The Seattle Times reports the deal also includes 
includes a 4% pay raise in 2023 and a $1,000 retention bonus for current employees who remain employed on July 1, 2023. The agreement must still be approved by both sides. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Kathy. Let's talk about school bus driver shortages that are happening well before the pandemic. Many older drivers, in fact, left their jobs over concern about COVID. And two years later... The Everett Herald reports many districts are still struggling. Bus driver shortages cause a domino effect. When a driver calls in sick and there's no sub to fill in, somebody from the transportation office may end up filling in. And then someone from administration has to cover at the transportation center. The Daily Herald reports that is true for several districts in Snohomish County. Lakewood started the school year with enough staff to cover its 20 bus routes, but they have no subs to fill in. In Muckleteo, the school district's director of transportation says... They would ideally have 96 main drivers and 15 to 20 subs. Right now, they've got seven routes without a main driver and just a few substitutes. Many districts are offering signing bonuses to lure drivers. A labor dispute led UW health workers to state protests in six locations earlier in the week all across the Sound. Here's John Lobertini. Amanda Boone led the protest in front of the Harborview Medical Center. What do we want? Retention. Now. She's among those shouldering the burden of a high turnover rate in the call center. When they get to the contact center and they need help, they don't get in contact with folks who know what they're doing and have all the answers because they're still in training. Picket lines were set up from Tacoma to Bothell. SEIU says they've been at the bargaining table since July. Tom Laha is a medical lab scientist. And they have not really moved an inch on any of our concerns. Our major concerns are safe staffing and fair pay around that to help us retain our staff. Better pay and better working conditions. Michelle Saunders marched with a sign that read 3% won't pay the rent. It's just not enough. You know, everything is going up, but our salary. Contract talks continue with UW. John Lubertini, Northwest News Radio. Another story that came through our newsroom this past week of two local communities are losing a medical transport service. The company notified the state's Employment Security Department it will stop its non-emergency ambulance service in Montlake Terrace and Fife beginning on December 15th. The Everett Herald reports the service moved patients between hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and medical clinics. In a news release, the company cited insurance reimbursements that failed to cover the cost of providing the service along with inflation and a tight labor market as reasons for the shutdown. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Are you drowning in student debt? Manufacturer has more on who might get help now from the feds. The White House estimates nearly 700,000 Washingtonians are eligible for President Joe Biden's student debt relief program. The administration will cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for those earning under $125,000 a year. Pell Grant recipients or undergrads with the most significant financial need are eligible for up to $20,000. According to the Seattle Times, since 1980, the cost of a four-year college degree has nearly tripled, even after accounting for inflation. The Department of Education will release more details on the plans soon. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Manda says you can learn more by going to the website studentaid.gov slash debt relief. Again, that's studentaid.gov slash debt relief. Reasons to hang around Northwest News Radio as we recap the top stories of the past week here ending September 24th. It was a surprising announcement by President Biden in a recent 60 Minutes interview that got many people scratching their heads. And Republicans, 
have a chance to win the governor's race in Oregon. These stories just ahead. For now, let's look at this story. We recently spoke with the Washington Post about the system that U.S. Customs agents use to search through phones of international travelers, including American citizens, and then later store and access that information. Here's Taylor Van Size. Tatum, your first piece of advice for travelers is to weigh their risk. How much leeway does a customs agent have in looking at these phones from international travelers and who might feel that they're most at risk? If you don't unlock your device, it's not unlocked, right? So I think that that's the most important thing to remember, that if you're a U.S. citizen, you have a right to enter the country even if you decline to unlock your device. So it's important to know that if you decline to unlock it, they might hold on to it. And that could be anything from a few days to months. So if you decline to unlock your device, they might take it from you. But if you're a U.S. citizen, you can still go back to your home. Now, what about those who are, say, permanent residents or here on a work visa or just uh, just tourists? So if you're if you're a non-citizen, you do not have the same right to enter the country. So in that case, it would be about managing what's on your device. And that's where assessing your risk level comes in. If you're someone like a political dissident, a human rights activist, a journalist, or anyone really looking to avoid government surveillance or overreach, maybe because you've been the target of racial profiling in the past, you're, you're going to want to manage what's on your device before handing it over or unlocking it. Are all border crossings or, or customs offices equally likely to try and access phones and other devices, or is there a, a lapse or an easier way to get into the country without having our phone searched? Yeah, so this is actually dependent on the state. Some states uh, have different rules for this than others. For example, California and Arizona, a CPB officer is only allowed to scroll through your device if they are looking for specific digital contraband, like um, child abuse material, for example. So if you are really concerned about sharing personal data with customs, then you can kind of do some research ahead of time to decide where you fly into the country. And let's say a person comes into the country, they're a U.S. citizen, they say, uh, no, you can't access my phone, but here it is. You can keep it in your custody until you deem it's time to give it back to me. You know, we still need to have our contact lists, right, or our email access, documents and images. What's the recommendation for a traveler in that scenario? If they hold on to your phone and are not able to open it, especially if you're if this is a smartphone, most contemporary smartphones come with their data encrypted or with built-in encryption, which means that that data isn't going to be readable if they um, try to download it without being able to unlock your phone. If a CPB officer performs what they call a basic search, which is where um, you allow them to open up your phone and then they scroll through, then that's going to be a, ma- um, a question of managing what's visible. You're allowed to flip your phone into airplane mode, which means that the agent would only be allowed to see what's stored or cached on the device as opposed to stuff that Gmail or Facebook sends to the cloud. So that's just going to be a question of um, putting things into maybe a hidden folder or something that's password protected or deleting it. Tatum Hunter with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post, and you can find more online at WashingtonPost.com. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News Radio for the week of September 24th. We're back after this. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Welcome back. In a recent 60 Minutes interview with CBS News, President Joe Biden made this surprising announcement. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. But the pandemic is over. Dan Diamond did a story for The Washington Post and spoke with us here at Northwest News. Dan, first, is the president right? What do the metrics show about the state of the pandemic? Well, the president is right that a lot of Americans have moved on past the pandemic, Taylor. I was just looking at some survey data. More than 40% of Americans say they've gone back to their pre-COVID lives. 
But in terms of deaths, infections, COVID is still with us. There are still 400 people dying per day with or because of COVID. There's still thousands of infections that are, are showing up. And there are fears that we will see for the third year in a row a surge of cases in the fall into the winter. So it's not done with us, regardless of what the president said on TV. And the president, he has a history of misspeaking in the past. Is the White House doing any damage control today, or are they backing him up? <laughs> I got a lot of calls from White House folks uh, Sunday night after this, assuring me that the president uh, was, even though it was a surprise, and it came as a surprise to many senior officials, he didn't say anything new. It wasn't anything surprising. I think you and I and your listeners can agree that was a surprising statement. It, it has put the White House a little bit in the box, Taylor. They're still asking for more money to fight COVID in Congress. That's something that Senator Patty Murray of Washington State is helping lead on. We're calling on Americans to get vaccinated and boosted. So the White House very much wants people to still be aware of COVID, still fighting COVID. President saying that the pandemic is over doesn't help them do that very much. As you report, we're next month expecting the expiration of the emergency declaration. Does this um, kind of cement that the president won't be trying to extend that emergency declaration? It looks, Taylor, like that emergency declaration will be renewed. And why that matters is it allows cover for people to get health insurance through Medicaid, use certain treatments and tests that were expedited during the COVID pandemic. It's a big deal, even if it sounds somewhat technical. I, I think there are Republicans, and I've talked to a few in Congress today, who are pointing to the president's statement and saying, why do we need an emergency declaration that the president says that the pandemic is over? But I think the White House will find a way to justify that they will renew this uh, emergency next month. And finally, Dan, how do other world leaders uh, view the state of the pandemic right now or, or the World Health Organization as we you know, prepare for a potential winter surge? The head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, said last week that the end of the pandemic is in sight, but we still have to do quite a bit of work, vaccinations, protections around the world to reach that. And even inside the president's administration, Taylor, your senior officials cautioning we're not there yet either. But before we got on the air, I was watching Dr. Fauci do an interview where he said we're not where we need to be to move on. So I think what the president said, it may have captured some popular sentiment. But it doesn't capture the reality of where we are with the pandemic. Dan Diamond with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for the Washington Post. And you can always find Dan's coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. That's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. President Joe Biden's comments about COVID being over, by the way, are prompting all kinds of reaction from the medical and scientific community. Brian Calvert, in fact, uh, finds a trusted local source for all things pandemic-related and says he's very concerned. I caught up with Dr. Ali Mokdad while he was on a trip to New York and asked him about his prediction of another wave of COVID infections this fall. Yes, we're expecting a surge in case hospitalization and mortality. Mokdad knew the underlying reason for my call and he dove right in. Quite honestly, I was shocked. And I was like, what? How could he say that? In unscripted comments, the president declared the pandemic over. The White House has since expressed worry about these comments. Mokdad is more than worried. To tell people before winter it's over, you don't need, basically, what they hear is, I don't need to go and get a booster. I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to be careful. It's over. And that's why. COVID case counts have been historically low here in the Northwest over the past several weeks, but new small jumps in cases are coming in as the kids return to class, and people are still dying from the virus. It's not over. This virus is still around. More than 400 people are dying every day from COVID-19. And how could we say it's over? We irrespective, Brian, irrespective of where you are, what state you live in, 
COVID-19 is the second, third, or fourth leading cause of death in the United States, much more than breast cancer. Will anybody in public health and medicine stand up and say, breast cancer is over, we shouldn't worry about it? Mokdad says he isn't looking to pick a fight with the other Washington. And I hope the president and everybody around him will come back, let the American public know that it's not over, we need to be extra careful. And he reiterates there's nothing political about COVID or COVID rules, nor should there be. It remains a threat to everyone, especially as we head back indoors. From a scientific standpoint, I would say it's not over. Please go get your booster if you haven't done so. Please wear a mask when you are indoor and you cannot keep a safe distance from everybody else. COVID-19 is going to rise in the fall and you need to protect yourself, your loved ones, and people around you. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Hang around for our next segment. We'll give you the latest about Tacoma camp sweeps and also choice of Seattle's new chief of police. For the first time in decades, Republicans have a chance to win the governor's race in Oregon, an unusual shift for the usually deep blue state. Jeff Holgela got the latest from political strategist Randall Edwards of Strategies 360. What is going on down there in Salem? Oregon is going through, I think, what a lot of the country is trying to feel, and that is, do the two parties represent all the interests in this state? And so not only do we have a viable candidate in our Republican nominee, uh, we have Tina Kotek, who's the Democrat nominee, and the third candidate is Betsy Johnson, who's a non-affiliated candidate. She's not assigned to any party, and she left the Democrat Party to run right up the middle. And I think she, too, has a very good shot at winning this race. So she's kind of playing the role of spoiler, as it were. Yeah, I think some people would describe it as that, or some would say savior. I think that her message has been both parties aren't serving the people, which not only is happening in Oregon, it's happening across the country. And so, therefore, she's taking that message, and people seem to be listening to what she's having to say and attacking both the Democrat and the Republican for not being responsive to the needs of Oregon. So what are some of the big issues down there in Oregon that have come up during this campaign that have really pushed this left-leaning independent, if I were to call her that, uh, to the forefront? Good question. I think, you know, like every state, we went through the pandemic, and that had a lot of economic and social implications for Oregon and Portland, got a lot of national news for the rioting that was happening in Portland. We have a very large homeless problem in Portland. And so a lot of Portlanders, which is normally the base for Democrats, uh, the tri-county area, there are a lot of upset people. Again, that's something that Betsy Johnson's tapping into is that this disgruntlement with the government and the fact that we have a, a very large homeless problem. And, and and we had a lot of violence that has left scars on the city of Portland that are still there. So let's kind of go through each of these candidates. Uh, we'll start with Tina Kotek. She's the, the Democrat in the race, and she was the former Speaker of the House. Is that right? Yeah, she was the longest serving Speaker in Oregon history, 10 years, effective, and, and both representing what would be the traditional Democrat base, uh, labor, for example, environmental groups, uh, women's issues as well. But she also worked hard with the business community on passing the largest tax increase to fund our schools in Oregon. So she's seen as a very effective legislator who knows the state really well and the budgets really well. So, And she's making a case that Democrats continue to provide good leadership in the state and, and is really move, looking to move forward with her own agenda. And then the Republican, Christine Drazen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's she? Christine Drazen was also a legislator, was in leadership in the state house. 
seen as a Republican that can work across the aisle. I, I think that's been another challenge for the Republicans in this state. She's trying to drive more of a moderate uh, message as well. And typically in the state of Oregon, we, Democrats usually come out ahead because it's a head to head between Democrat and Republican. And there's more Democrats than Republicans, but also the non-affiliated voters tend to break towards uh, the Democrats, particularly on social issues, which, again, tend to drive these elections as much as anything. And Betsy Johnson, the independent the that leans left, who maybe, as you say, taking some of the votes from Tina Kotek. Betsy's a really interesting candidate. She's been in the state legislature for nearly 20 years. Her family have long ties to Oregon. Uh, she was a Republican at one point in her life, switched a number of years ago and has been a state senator as a Democrat representing the northwest part of Oregon along the coast and down along the Columbia River, Scappoose area, and has always been seen as a very tenacious legislator who fought for constituent work. And she's garnered a lot of support from both what would be seen as traditional Republican bases. Uh, the business community has been pouring money into her campaign pain, as have others who see her as one that can drive a message of change in the state because she's said, uh, driving, as I said earlier, a message about the two parties not meeting the needs of Oregon. As political strategist Randall Edwards with our own Northwest News Radio's Jeff Poljula. I'm Mark Christopher. Northwest News This Week continues ending for the week of September 24th. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. Once the midterm elections are over, the focus will shift to the 2024 presidential election. Will it be a rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump? That's the most likely matchup at the moment. But I think a great many Americans would be very unhappy with that. ABC News political analyst Steve Roberts. Biden, if you average all the national polls, is at 42 percent favorable. Donald Trump is at 40 percent favorable. I think for both of them, the negatives actually outweigh the positives. Roberts told the morning news he believes Democrats might have one bright spot. People don't fear Joe Biden. They might think he's old and creaky and his interview at 60 Minutes last night was kind of pathetic. But they don't fear him. They fear Donald Trump. And those emotions are more powerful. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Seattle City Council has cleared the way for a social housing initiative to appear on a special election ballot early next year. To help us catch up and understand, Corwin Haig. We told you last month the social housing campaign, Initiative 135, had gathered enough signatures to warrant a special election. Now the Seattle City Council has voted unanimously to place the measure on a ballot February 14th. The measure would create government-run permanently affordable housing. Housing advocate Tiffany McCoy says we need it because, she says, housing nonprofits combined with the free market have failed to create enough stable, affordable housing. And it's time for us to step in very intentionally and forcefully and make sure that folks who want to live here and work here um, are able to do that. Social housing, as tried in only a few places worldwide, would be insulated from the market forces that push rents up. Some housing nonprofits oppose the measure, saying it would divert money away from their successful efforts. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Now let's move into a few stories involving the homeless here in the Puget Sound. The people of Seattle's Chinatown International District are ratcheting up the pressure over a planned shelter expansion that will house hundreds of homeless people. They march from China 
Chinatown right into Seattle City Hall. Can I get you to start lining up on this side here? The crowd was so big it had to be separated. Tanya Wu is with the friends of the Chinatown International District. We just want to be heard. We believe it's systemic racism that they're making decisions about our community without our input. The shelter expansion at Hinghei Park would house close to 500 homeless people, provide RV parking, and a sobering center. Kim Wynn's business is just steps away. Every day when I open the store, so many crime, so many drugs, so many sex, uh, violence over there, and no police taking care of that. This is a county-run project, and in recent weeks, officials have pointed to the many community meetings and commitments that were made leading up to this decision back in May. But some in Chinatown contend they still didn't know. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, John. Two problematic encampments in Tacoma are set to be removed in the coming week. The two encampments, one at 8th Street and Yakima, and the other from 15th to 18th Street and Yakima, have had a significant increase in emergency service requests. The city normally posts a 72-hour removal notice, but has implemented a one-week posting period to allow encampment residents to connect with services. 25 to 35 people will be affected, according to the city's estimates. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. And then let's look into this matter that's gotten a lot of attention. State officials telling the city of Spokane that they will not be clearing out a large homeless camp near I-90, even though Camp Hope is located on state DOT property. The update now from Carlene Johnson. The inspirational sounding name is not the reality of life in and around the camp, according to neighbors. One woman who lives just a block from the camp says it's crime-ridden with constant noise and garbage, and she watches the RV pull around the block, leaving their waste valve open, dumping feces and urine on city streets or in her front yard. Then the city has to come out and clean and in, and spray the streets down with bleach. It's pretty disgusting. I've had people that'll just puke all over my lawn. Mayor Nadine Woodward tells Creme TV it all started with just a few tents last year. And was allowed to grow because Washtot wouldn't do anything about their own property. But to the city's insistence the camp on DOT property be cleared out by October 14th. The agency responded to say the city fails to acknowledge its own responsibility in finding long-term solutions to the ongoing homeless crisis involving its own residents. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News Radio this week, ending September the 24th, every week here on AM 1000, FM 97.7. It's very time. Also, your convenience, find it at nwnewsradio.com. As we continue, Mayor Bruce Harrell has made his pick for a new police chief here in Seattle. It's Adrian Diaz, the interim chief who has been leading the department for two years, ever since Carmen Best resigned in August of 2020. I approach this work with optimism, mindful of the trust that was shattered by the events of 2020s George following the murder of George Floyd, of the combined trauma of the community and our officers alike, and of the long path of reconciliation ahead of us. Diaz was one of the three finalists for the job whose names were only announced last week. His nomination still requires approval from the Seattle City Council. Jeff Podzel in Northwest News Radio. Neighborhoods plagued by violence are often the same areas where basics like food and health care are lacking. That's according to one community later, Ryan Harris, with more from a discussion on gun violence. Young people are often a target, whether it's because they come from communities of color where biases often work against them, or by gangs which use them to engage in violence because of limits on juvenile punishment. More and more, police and prosecutors are turning to community groups to intervene with youth to turn them away from violence. That 
That includes groups like Choose 180, whose executive director Sean Good told the state senate committee they are essentially tour guides on young people's journey to healing. Young people are possibilities to be developed and not problems to be solved. And then if we wrap them around with those types of supports and begin to invest in them as possibilities, the outcomes that we can create are just as significant as the purpose that lives within each of them. Often that healing involves kids' exposure to domestic violence in their homes, which a couple of police officials say is frequently a root cause of community violence. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. As you're finding out, it's been another busy week here in the newsroom of Northwest News Radio. And hang around our next segment. We're going to talk about food robots and also hospital capacity. How bad is it? Here we have the State Court of Appeals has overturned a drug convention because a Snohomish County prosecutor used a race-based term during the trial. Four years ago, Jesus Ibarra Erives was arrested in a raid that uncovered methamphetamine and heroin in an apartment south of Everett. During the trial, the lead detective referred to 25 grams of heroin being called a Mexican ounce in street terminology. Well, the prosecutor then used that phrase twice more in his closing argument. The Everett heroin reports the appeals court ruled the use of that phrase undermined the presumption of innocence that the defendant deserved. So his case is being sent back to Snohomish County for a new trial. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Greg. Northwest News this week continues, ending for the week of September 24th. More to listen to coming up. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. As we continue, teachers in Seattle ratified a three-year contract with the district. The Seattle School Board still needs to vote on the contract for it to be finalized, but it is expected members will accept the three-year contract that offers educators a lot of what they held out for. More money with a 14% pay increase over three years and smaller staff-to-student ratios for special education, more counselors, more nurses, and other concessions. Jennifer Motter, president of the Seattle Education Association, tells me they realize the hardship on families of the strike, but says they would and will do it again to make sure students are getting all they deserve. It's also our legal and uh, uh, paramount duty, as they call it in the state of Washington, to provide a um, free you know, public education, and it should be quality public education. It's the number one duty we have. Students in Seattle have five days to make up because of the strike. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Another story here we want to make sure you heard about if you missed in the past week. COVID cases may be in decline, but hospitals across the state here in Washington are still pretty full. There's still not enough room or room, says Taya Briley with the Washington State Hospital Association. This means that individuals who are experiencing trauma, heart attack, strokes, and other conditions that require emergency or inpatient treatment may have significant difficulty accessing timely care. She says they're working with the state to find answers, but no longer can you point to just COVID as the reason for full hospitals. Yes, the virus started it, but now the problem is that there's nowhere to send patients who require long-term care. That's about 10 to 20 percent of those currently in the hospital. These people remain taking up what few beds are left. Staffing shortages are issues at hospitals, but it's really an issue in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Without the staff, they just can't take in any more patients. Most fear our hospitals will remain full for weeks, maybe even months to come. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. 
Starbucks, we heard, ending a COVID-era benefit it was giving its baristas. Saying the pandemic is shifting into the endemic phase, the company now says workers who contract COVID-19 would have to use their sick or vacation days. Previously, the company gave employees two weeks of catastrophe pay if they were forced to quarantine due to an exposure or a positive test. The company says this is just one more step in returning to previously existing policies. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Another local business headline, Amazon's latest acquisition deal is under scrutiny. Here's Kathy O'Shea. The Federal Trade Commission has requested additional information from Amazon and iRobot in connection with their $1.7 billion merger. Both companies have indicated they will cooperate. Groups calling for stricter antitrust regulations called on the FTC to block the merger, arguing it furthered Amazon's dominance in the smart home market. Following the investigation, the FTC can challenge the merger, seek remedies or allow the deal to close. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Looking at a couple of stories we still have yet to get to, a wine social that you'll want to know about, and what about this Gino trademark? So, you know, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, and of course, Larry, Moe, and Curly. But have you met Flippy, Sippy, and Chippy? They're a new trio of fast food robots. Laura Riley, taking a closer look for the Washington Post, and had this to share with our listeners. Laura, where in the world did you find Flippy, Sippy, and Chippy, and what are they capable of? Well, I got to meet Flippy up close. Uh, We went to, me and a a videographer from the paper, went to Pasadena to uh, Miso Robotics and watched them design robots, and then we watched one being installed at a jack-in-the-box in San Diego, and we got to see the kind of interesting interface between human worker and robotic worker in the fast food context, which I think we're all going to be seeing a lot more of pretty soon. Now, when we think of of this robot, I mean, is it like Rosie from the Jetsons or maybe not quite that advanced? Not quite that advanced, but it is very clearly, I kind of was saying, well, what's the difference between a machine and a robot? Well, a robot can correct in real time, can learn over time to do things more efficiently and effectively. So this is basically a robotic arm with a whole bunch of cameras that does all of the deep frying for for a jack-in-the-box. And, you know, I didn't realize this, but about 60% of all the foods produced at jack-in-the-box go through the deep fryer. So that's where things, you know, log jam up at the the drive-through. So it was a a, a serious uh, solution to a lot of their woes. Uh, and thus far, they've just done it in, in one of these locations, but the aim is to roll it out more broadly in the next year or so. And as you note in your piece, it's that fry station where most of the injuries happen to the human employees, which brings up the question of cash, obviously, for Flippy or Sippy or Chippy. Uh, how do they compare to hiring Larry, Moe, and Curly? Well, you know, you don't ever have a, a, a robot call in sick or use the health insurance uh, for the company. Once you've trained them, they're pretty much trained. Uh, I think there's a lot of turnover. And as we've seen just in the past year or two uh, during the pandemic, most fast food restaurants have been woefully understaffed. You know, there are a lot of restaurants that to this day can't stay open all of the hours that it wants to because of staffing issues. So this has been the whole restaurant industry has really seen a, a, a labor shortage for at least 18 months. And robotics are increasingly a solution that that chain restaurants are turning to. If a franchisee really wants to drop some money on a robot to to man the fry station, how much is that going to cost? Well, so this particular one, it was about $5,000 for the installation and about $3,500 a month rental. 
So is that about the same as a, as a single employee? Probably. But this robot doesn't mind work in the graveyard shift and can work 24 hours in a row and not demand any uh, overtime. So, you know, there's a lot of indication that long term, some of those kinds of hot, miserable jobs may be taken over by robots. You know, it's those hot, miserable jobs that made me into the broadcaster I am today, though. I mean, so many of us spent time behind uh, a fry top or scooping ice cream or something like that. It'll be interesting to see what this does to uh, first jobs and early resumes for young workers. Laura Riley with us on Northwest News Radio. Reported for the Washington Post. You can find that video and the written up coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. Laura, thank you. Ted Van Sice of Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. It's Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of September 24. We're all here to help you catch up. Stay with us. Northwest This Week continues. As more and more of us eagerly return to being social, there's a unique venue option on Seattle's first hill you might consider. Who better to tell us about it than Brian Calvert? One of the first things Sharon Provins will tell you. The best ideas do come after some wine. Take, for instance, the idea she hatched along with her childhood friend Kim as the two got together after not seeing each other for a couple of years. We wanted to talk all night and just catch up on our lives. Um, at the time, she had two children under the age of five. And... We were like, we need to get out of this house. But honestly, we had nowhere to go. Oh, yeah. The pair discussed all the options, including... We should open a bar. Kim was in the the bar and restaurant industry, and she was like, nope. She said, we'll never make any money. And she was right. Instead, they founded the first women-owned chain of social clubs designed with the everyday Joe and Jill in mind. Our mission, our corporate mission, is to democratize the private club experience. Their BYOB Wine Social Club is called Birch Road. And after over a year of searching, they have a Seattle location. It's at the historic address 1212 Minor Avenue. You may know it as the Stimson Green Mansion. In the 1900s, um, people built these huge mansions not because they had a lot of children or because, you know, they needed a huge house. They did it because there was nowhere else to entertain. Birch Road member Brian O'Connor discovered the concept in Chicago and was elated when a location opened here shortly after he moved to Seattle. Particularly after this past couple of years and all the impact that it's had on all of us, um, it seems to me that finding a way to bring people together in person, unite around things we have in common, has just been fantastic. It's been great as a transplant to a new city, um, and then even more so just in a time where we're all kind of relearning. If you'd like to check out this social club, it will hold its first ever Birch Road Wine Fest on Saturday, a benefit for Washington's historic landmarks. There's ticket information at the Birch Road website. But really, this space is about creating a place to meet with your friends, no matter how you're dressed, no matter how you're feeling, and enjoying wine in a very different way. You know, it's a great place to gather and get to know people. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Turning to sports, one story that comes to mind we want to share here. The report card is mixed so far this season on Seahawks quarterback Geno Smith. But the man who's had to replace Russell Wilson has come up with perhaps the season's best catchphrase. Do you know what it is? We're about to find out. No matter what happens for the rest of the season, journeyman quarterback Geno Smith can always say he beat Dangerous in the Seahawks' Monday night football first game. The win produced this memorable post-game soundbite. Folks, you said had written you off maybe. What does this say to them? Yeah, 
They wrote me off. I ain't right back, though. Now, multiple sources report Smith has contacted the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to apply for a trademark on the phrase, they wrote me off, I ain't right back, though. It might be a strategy Smith learned from the man whose cleats he is trying to fill. Back in 2020, then-Seahawk Russell Wilson filed a trademark request for the phrase, let Russ cook. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. The hope is this program gives you a chance to catch up on the stories you might have missed during this past week. We do this every week at this very time here, airing it on uh, AM 1000 FM 97.7 Northwest News Radio, Saturday nights at 7. We also repeat it Sunday nights at 9. And in your convenience, of course, originally a podcast, and it still is. Northwest News This Week, you can find it at our website as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. You'll find other favorites like Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Sound Now. And if you enjoyed this program, as a podcast, feel free to share a rating and review at Apple Podcast. It really helps out. Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of September 24th, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor is Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. Again, thank you for listening so much. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.